0: The main vector for disinformation operations were journalists. that was they were the gatekeepers, and you had to convince a journalist that a story is you know newsworthy, uh, and for example, that a forgery is credible enough to be covered as real. So that meant that some of these operations really required craftsmanship and exquisite planning and preparations. Sometimes they had to you know maintain friendly relationships with with journalists in order to surface um, this material in a more effective way. One of the fascinating questions, I think, is whether that has changed as the result of as the result of the internet. and I, I would say that arguably the answer is a little bit but not completely.
1: I'm Quincha Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare podcast, April thirtieth, two thousand and twenty. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth mini-series on disinformation. This time, featuring an interview with Thomas Ridd about his new book, Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Yesterday's episode of the Lawfare podcast also featured a conversation between Thomas and Jack Goldsmith about the book, focusing on the early history of disinformation through the 1980s. Today, Alina Polyakova and I follow up with a discussion with Thomas on disinformation in the digital age, along with some questions about just what it's like to interview former KGB and Stasi officials about influence campaigns they ran in the past. If you haven't already listened to Jack's interview with Thomas, don't worry. Each interview stands alone, so you can go ahead and listen to today's episode first if you like. They're both great conversations. It's the Lawfare Podcast. Thomas Ridd on Active Measures, Part 2. So Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You have this new book out, Active Measures. And Alina and I wanted to start the conversation with a very basic question, which is why did you set out to write this
0: book? Yeah, so when the twenty sixteen election interference started and became public in in June twenty sixteen, I followed it very closely because I was independently tracking a historical Russian hacking campaign. Um, Moonlight Maze. I did a deep dive on that operation. And as we saw the disinformation component emerge, the hacking, the leaking, and forgeries come out, I just realized that I was not equipped to understand the history. And the more I looked into the history, the more sense the forensics, the digital breadcrumbs that I collected actually made. So I thought, if I really want to understand what's going on here um, and really also tell the story in a way that is really credible, then I really I have to go back into into back in time to study this history.
1: A lot of the book is about the sort of sliding back and forth between what is known and what isn't at different points in time and what what can and and can't be known. But so, so to get to that, I think it, it makes sense to ask another sort of question laying the groundwork, which is, how do you define an active measure? What are the characteristics of it?
0: So, yeah, uh, an active measure, I mean, the word, the term itself, active measure, is a little strange. It's sort of not self-explanatory. So the Soviets, um, uh, Soviet, different Soviet bloc intelligence agencies in the 1960s, in the early 60s, began to rename this activity um, that uh, consisted of sometimes forging information, sometimes publishing accurate information, always trying to influence a, a conversation either privately or more often publicly. They moved away from disinformation to active measures. So disinformation focuses our mind on the difference between true and false, facts and fiction. But active measures, and that's why I like the term, although it's no longer in use inside the intelligence community in uh, Russia, I like the term because it focuses our mind on what makes a specific measure active. And what makes it active is that it taps into already existing prejudices, fears, and emotions and amplifies them, sometimes also develops them a little further. And the focus on facts versus fiction is counterproductive because what you need is a mix of both, and sometimes completely accurate information um, that is, for example, leaked like the Podesta uh, emails that then confirms fears and, and prejudices and drives wedges into existing cracks.
2: Uh so to follow up on that a little bit you know the book is really impressive in its scope it covers an entire century of active measures uh starting um in the early 1900s with Dzerzhinsky uh who's the founder of the Cheka in revolutionary Russia so could you tell us a little bit about the origin story and why you start here why start revolutionary Russia who was Dzerzhinsky and what was the Cheka
0: So yeah, uh, I I struggled with the question when to start because arguably the history of disinformation is much, much older. But I decided to start with modern intelligence agencies that developed uh, and funded uh, an entire bureaucracy to run these operations. And the first such example is the, the young Soviet intelligence organization headed by Felix Dzerzhinsky, the Cheka, in the immediately soon after the revolution in the early 1920s, I think is when these operations really begin in a more sophisticated fashion. And I'm telling the story there of the trust, this fake monarchist insurgency basically that Dzerzhinsky created in order to lure the exiled white Russian resistance into complacency, making them believe that they don't need to take action from outside the Soviet Union to instigate a counter-revolution.
2: So for everyone listening, Dzerzhinsky, you know, maybe not a familiar household name to everyone, Uh, this is a lawfare podcast, uh, but certainly uh, was, um, I guess, the godfather of what we now refer to as active measures, political warfare, the godfather of deception um, and was a Bolshevik, um, and someone who really believed in the cause, of, as far as we know, and began this process using you know, deception, forgeries, all the kinds of things you describe, began the process of using forgeries, all the kinds of things you describe, deception, um, as a way to try to influence, infiltrate um, adversarial countries that he at least saw, in the Bolsheviks saw so as adversarial to the Soviet Union, also movements of all kinds. Of course, the monarchist movement at the time was their key target and eventually victim, I suppose, of these kinds of operations. I think the book has so many incredible examples that you uncover in the process of your research. What are some of your favorites?
0: I mean, the point that you were just making there is is really crucial. And let me just tease out something that you hinted at, and that is that from day one, KGB, as it later became known, the Czech, uh, the Czechist intelligence organization, from birth, basically, they looked at intelligence collection as part of running operations. They never really distinguished between just informing their political leaders and using information in operations and, you know, in active measures and in information operations. They basically were designed as an information operations agency. Lenin himself. is is often quoted by Dzerzhinsky, by by many Czechists, as, for example, Stasi called themselves Czechists throughout the 80s even as as the uh, intellectual inspiration for active measures. So my favorite examples, uh, my favorite stories are, in fact, some of these I was so thrilled when I found in Bulgarian state security archives a series of memos and briefings from uh, KGB Service A The disinformation active measures unit hence the a from the late 70s and early 80s where the head of the unit then spells out in extraordinary detail how to run active measures at scale how to propose how to refine a proposal how to authorize them how to review them how to use consultants to make operations more culturally competent shall we say i mean I was, that was just a, an extraordinary gold mine. And I have an entire chapter on this.
1: So one of the other, um, I mean, the the book is full of stories that are just absolutely astonishing. One of uh, the chapters that I, I found most incredible is a chapter on what you call red swastikas. Um, so can you tell us that story in brief?
0: Yeah. So in, uh, in approximately 1958, when the reorganization inside uh, the first chief directorate of the KGB of disinformation was already beginning, the then new head of this department, it was then only a department, was um, uh, Igor Agayans, a very impressive, sophisticated Armenian officer who understood the value and the And the the meaning of trauma, given that he himself was an Armenian officer. So he saw in the German press reports of anti-Semitic incidents still happening in Germany, real, actual anti-Semitic hate crimes. And um, inspired by those, he decided to um, first test and then actually engage in a fake anti-Semitic campaign, which then began... On Christmas Day in 1959, the end of 1959. So that operation was extraordinary because KGB organized, uh, approximately, it's difficult to, to say how many incidents KGB organized, maybe dozens, probably more likely hundreds. But what happened is that they caught fire and caused an actual wave of antisemitism. And so at the end, there were approximately 900 incidents worldwide, a little more within the space of seven weeks. And the operation was a fantastic success because it put West Germany into a very uncomfortable position vis-a-vis its allies. So we had anti-Semitic incidents in, uh, I think, I believe 14, at least 14 American cities in the UK, France, Australia, even South Africa, in Israel itself. And West Germany looked very, very bad for a couple of weeks.
1: And so you you had some audio uh, that you wanted to share for us, and we'll cue that up. But first, can you just tell listeners what they're about to hear?
0: So yeah, in my research of that operation, I had to, of course, get the attribution right. How do we know this is actually a KGB uh, operation? So I collected all the evidence that we have from multiple defectors and former intelligence officers who wrote about it in their memoirs, um, and some of them were still alive. And so I I, I sat down with one of them, um, Oleg Kalugin, a former KGB general, who as a younger officer was in New York when the anti Semitic hate wave hit, partly designed by him and his um agency, and I get him to, to talk about it in a in a restaurant here in Washington because he now lives in the uh, Washington area. And uh that's quite quite the uh quite the response he's giving me to, to the question of how it was and and, and whether they ran these anti-Semitic operations. So, like, who would actually paint the the swastikas and and all that in New York? Oh, we would have some guy who we trusted and he would paid money
1: for it and he would
2: do the rest.
0: (laughs) Sort of a local stringer type? Yeah, 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 sort of local, one of the friends. So one of the stories that Baron tells in his book and I I find it kind of I find it thinkable but hard to believe and I would just get your sense whether you think it's credible He says Aga this is in 1960 uh, 1959 Aga has this idea um, to Exploit to to, to use anti Semitism in West Germany and sort of instigate it, create more of it. Mm-hmm. And he sends a few KGB people to a village in Moscow, close to Moscow, mm-hmm. and tells them, okay, commit anti Semitic hate crimes? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, we did it. Close to Moscow? Yeah, well, no, we yeah, did it in,
1: uh, in many places of okay, the world, anti Semitism.
0: maintaining anti-semitism in the world, but that was this KGB also involved in that. But he implies that Agayans tested this in Russia in order to see whether there would be people joining in. Uh, Can you imagine that he actually did that? I do not recall. Hmm. So where would where would KGB do that do that? Not just in oh, Germany? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well sure. wherever it was uh, I mean possible technically without risk of any you know, yeah. you know just, uh, police or anything. Where huh. we had trusted friends who would do the job.
2: So that was really incredible audio. Um you know, in addition to all of the, the stories and the research that you uncover, I think what really comes down in the book um, is individuals like Kalugin um, and others that you managed to interview. Many of them are obviously a much older age now. Um, and one of them that uh, figures pretty prominently in the opening of the book is an individual by the name of Bittman. Um, and I know that uh, he has passed away since you were able to interview him. But I was wondering if you could tell us in um, broad strokes, kind of more about this group of defectors, these former intelligence officers and others that you were able to speak to. What was that like? What are these people like?
0: So it's really hard to track down living, you know, Soviet bloc officers who took part um, or have real first-hand knowledge of disinformation operations and active measures, simply because many of them, are dead uh, or very, very old. And some of them just don't want to talk about their experiences. So there are a few people from Stasi's disinformation unit that are still alive, but only one really wanted to talk on the record. I talked to another one briefly, but then he decided he didn't want to continue the conversation. Uh, Yet another one just didn't want to talk. And that is, uh, you know, it's understandable in some ways. But... Working with defector accounts is a tricky uh, thing, not just because these are people trained in disinformation, but also because memory is is uh, is a treacherous thing, human memory, especially trying to remember events that are such a long time ago. So I found that often the interviews that I did were more of a, uh, it was more of a, I mean, the personal experience was fascinating because it makes it real which is why I'm sharing these audio snippets with you. But often I had to check the details that they told me. And um, so it's difficult to work with defector accounts. Also, some are simply not honest. The people I talked to, I think, were honest. But some memoirs have to be fact-checked independently.
2: Could you say maybe a little bit more, just so people have a sense of what these individuals are like? I think few people had the opportunity, if you want to call it that, uh, to meet intelligence officers former intelligence officers um you know obviously we have talked a lot about this podcast um about russia and also putin who himself is a former intelligence officers and who constantly here in the us trying to figure out you know what does putin think for lack of a better term what are these individuals like to talk to um, what kind of presence do they convey um just can you give us a little bit more of a feel for them
0: when you so, I'm just going to describe two individuals: um, Ladislav Bitman, uh, Lawrence uh, Bittman, as he called himself later, the Czech uh, officer, officer and Horst Kopp, who is a Stasi disinformation, former Stasi disinformation officer. And both of them had one thing in common: they were very good listeners. Uh, I mean, they were both in their 80s when I talked to them, but extremely alert, you know, darting eyes. Very polite, good listeners. They, they would honestly say if they couldn't answer a question that I had, and their memory was extraordinary in both cases. Attention to detail was just remarkable, and uh, and yeah, they were just professionals. In some ways, I had to remind myself that they are also trained to be, you know, really charming and convincing in, in conversations, and they really were. Um, so that that was just a fascinating, on a human level, a fascinating experience. Especially the conversation with the uh, Stasi officer, uh, former Stasi officer, was fascinating because uh, he—he's not a defector. His organization went away. It's not he didn't go away, meaning he didn't leave his employer. So in some ways, he was still in the same mindset that he had back then, and he, you know, justified some of what they did to me as well in in their own language so that was a fascinating thing because um, obviously we had the conversation in german given that i am uh, a german and german born so uh bonding with him so to speak having a pleasant personal rapport with a stasi officer was just a very weird experience for me
1: can i ask did you find any of what he was saying convincing like was is he is it like talking with someone across an ideological chasm or is, you know, the, the skills that these people are using are, are skills to convince and persuade? Did he have any effect in that way?
0: You know, we didn't obviously discuss some of the wider, bigger ideological questions because I was so interested in very specific operational details. But of course, you, um, I'm not sure he still sees himself as a communist, or perhaps rather as, a, as some form of socialist. And, I mean, it is. It's not that this is not a new situation. If you grow up in you know East Berlin, I mean, I was best friends in university with people with you know students whose grandparents were in the Politburo. So you you come across these former East German uh, leadership uh, individuals uh, every now and then when you live in Berlin. I think that is still true today, although they're very old. So um, yeah, it's it's fascinating, but I wouldn't describe it as you know, very unusual.
1: So in the book, you include quotes from some of the people that we've just been discussing. There's a a quote from Bittman recalling something that a KGB officer told him, which was, "Uh, sometimes I'm amazed how easy it is to play these games, meaning disinformation. And then if they did not have press freedom, we'd have to invent it for them. And there's another quote that you cite by uh, Rolf Wagenbreth, who directed active measures for the Stasi, saying, what would active measures be without the journalist? Uh, Those quotes both get to something that's really important in the book, which is the role of the press. Can you talk about what they mean there?
0: Yeah, so before the internet came around, the main vector for disinformation operations were journalists. That was, they were the gatekeepers, and you had to convince a journalist that a story is, you know, newsworthy. Uh, and for example, that a forgery is credible enough to be covered as real. So that meant that some of these operations really required craftsmanship and exquisite planning and preparations. Sometimes they had to, you know, maintain friendly relationships with with journalists in order to surface um, this material in a more effective way. One of the fascinating questions, I think, is whether that has changed as the result of, as the, result of the internet. And I, I would say that arguably the answer is a little bit, but not completely. Meaning it's of, of course possible to surface data, stolen uh, material, or even forged material, to surface that online. You know, doesn't have to be WikiLeaks. Can be an independent website or some other way by email, anonymously, paste bin. You know, there are endless possibilities. But let's let's look for a moment at the Podesta leaks, uh, just just to make this point. I think what you saw there from a from a planning perspective and from an operational lifecycle perspective is that the value creation chain was essentially outsourced to the victim to a degree because you had independent journalists and also independent just investigators dig into a large amount of files. And then they found the newsworthy scandalous material on their own. So some of the craftsmanship essentially was no longer on the side of the actual perpetrators, but on the side of the victim, but it still worked in the favor of the, of the perpetrators. So uh, that I think is one of the extraordinary novelties here is that the quality and the craftsmanship of tradecraft that we see is actually worse uh, because it doesn't have to be as good anymore than what we saw in the Cold War.
2: That's really interesting. I think we want to come back to you know, how do we get from you know Dzerzhinsky in the 1920s, the fledgling Soviet state to Russian interference in 2016 and beyond in the digital age. And another thing that really takes us to, I think, what is the the meat of the book. So I just want us to to get into it. Uh, you make three key arguments in the book in the book, and let's walk through each of those. So, first, you write that, quote, disinformation campaigns are attacks against a liberal epistemic order. What exactly do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so Many operations, not all of them require openness, require press freedom to work. And what I just outlined about the way leaks were digested by, you know, here in the US in 2016 is illustrating that point. So the, an open epistemic order also means that we worship facts ideally as liberal democracies. We change our political leaders based on new information in, you know, regular elections. We have journalists, investigative journalists that report out scandals that are, you know, based on hard investigative work. Law enforcement agencies um of course rely on factual information to bring cases to court. We have scientists like myself or scholars who, you know, worship facts. And what you see in disinformation operations is the precise opposite. They ignore facts. It's not that they go against facts as a matter of principle. They, There's something that doesn't really matter that much. What matters is exacerbating frictions and sometimes making ideological points. There's this extraordinary example that I cite from 1957 where Stasi forges a letter from uh, excuse me, a letter to Eisenhower from Rockefeller. And the, the the Rockefeller letter spells out the ugly face of oil-driven or capitalist-driven Western capitalism in, in in its most cliche form. And Neues Deutschland, the newspaper, the official state newspaper in East Berlin, reported on it and, and highlighted how perfectly this letter portrays the ugly face of capitalism it's it was like a like a modernist painting that is abstracted and in some ways captures the nature of what it is trying to depict in a in a more perfect way than than what is factually correct and it 's that attitude i think that is just a philosophical departure from what I call a, a an open epistemic order
2: yeah that 's really fascinating you know I think often in this confusion around what we're really talking about. We're talking about disinformation, political warfare, fake news, you know, all of these terms. I think we often go to the question of, you know, what is true and what is not? What is fact and what is fiction? Uh, but I think what you described throughout the book and all of these examples is that it's really about the ability to massage and manipulate uh, facts and, and fiction in a way that that division almost becomes uh, irrelevant, and I think at the end of the day, it really speaks to also the notion that you know, perceptions matter so much, and that people's beliefs, even if it is um, in a set of you know purposely falsified or purposely constructed narratives, organizations, fronts, what have you, you know, those beliefs are still incredibly strong if they even are based on completely falsified information or activities. Yeah, And so, you know, I think as you walk through the historical arc of the book, which gets us to you know, the second I think, core argument of the entire book, um, is really in the, the, about the historical arc of disinformation measures by the United States on the one hand, and the Eastern Bloc, broadly defined, led by the Soviet Union, obviously, on the other hand. Can you walk us through that uh tension and contestation and how that plays out in the active measure space?
0: Yeah, so the nineteen fifties are a crucial decade here, and a lot of a lot of the stories in the book are from the fifteen years after World War II, the sort of early fifties to nineteen fifty nine mid-1960s where CIA especially was a lot more active in what it called political warfare or sometimes just psychological warfare than it later was. And it's it's fascinating to study what CIA did in the 50s here, which hasn't been publicly covered before, by the way, to my astonishment. So some of these chapters are the freshest in the entire book, um, the CIA chapters. It's It's important to cover that in detail because we can – see in depth the life cycle and the planning cycle of, of these operations. They were quite similar, really, to what the KGB did at the time, including forgeries, including major front organizations in Berlin. And especially the front organization aspect is, is important here because let's remember that the most most sophisticated operations are run by Germans against Germans or by Russians against Russians by people who speak the same language, who have the same sense of humor, who know the traumas and the frictions and the contradictions embedded in their own societies. And here we see CIA using some local staff in Berlin. In fact, a former uh, Nazi Wehrmacht u uh, boat commander is heading their most productive front organization, LC Kassock, for many years. And, and I found it just extraordinary to see the learning the learning experience that SIA is going through as they Im- improve their front organizations in berlin
1: and part of what you write is that uh, disinformation run uh, in the east in the Soviet Union and then Russia sort of continues throughout the the 20th century and then the twenty first but in the united states there's a there's a different
0: arc yeah in the United States and it's difficult to explain why that is happening and in some ways i didn't succeed and Really getting to the bottom of it, in the United States, CIA retreats from political warfare, not completely, but 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 largely. And, and of course, they still do um, aggressive operations that are highly controversial, but not of the kind that can be described as active measures. In that in that sense, not disinformation operations, if you like. They never called it that themselves. And at the same time, you see an escalation by the late mid late sixties in the Soviet Union and uh, its satellite brotherly agencies. And what you see around that time takes us back to the ideological component. Of course, historians of the Soviet bloc may now say, well, but wait a minute, communism lost some of its charm and its appeal, and people you know, started to be quite openly critical and make fun of communism all the time already then. And that is certainly true but my point is that this institutionalized cynicism the double standard if you like saying one thing in private saying a completely thing, different thing in public that ultimately became an asset for intelligence operators for active measures officers because they they had to handle a deeply embedded contradiction in their own society they had to become cynical which in turn made them better at exploiting contradictions in their target society. So that I think is just a fascinating feature um, that I think we we obviously don't find explicitly uh, articulated in memos, but I think we can observe if we uh, read closely what's happening in the in the seventies and eighties.
1: So that brings us close to your last argument, which is about the effect of the digital age on disinformation and sort of how it changed things we've we've touched on this uh, before in the conversation but I'd love to dig into that a little more so w- what is the effect of the digital age on disinformation and also how how does the digital age mesh with what you just described with that that cynicism because I do think that the sort of, Cynicism, the keeping two things in your head at the same time, is actually, in a way, kind of what it's like to be on the internet right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think the the internet, um, our move to into the digital everything, had multiple different effects on on active measures, and I, I let's just let's isolate two effects real quick. One is WikiLeaks or before WikiLeaks, Cryptome which I briefly look at in the book. These are dream come true platforms for Active Measures operators. I mean the 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 puzzle, the funny question on WikiLeaks is why it took until twenty fifteen for, you know, governments to exploit WikiLeaks at a major scale. Because it's so perfect for active measures. The whole idea that you can put out information and not say who you are and do that in a way that you know is fast, uh, high volume, and credible, that's just perfect. Um, and especially because journalists used the platform, at least did for a long time. So leak sites and and anonymous, the anonymous movement, uh, th- the notion that leaks are a good thing, which you know is a post-Snowden phenomenon. Nobody assumed that Snowden could be part of a disinformation operation or individual leaks in the context of Snowden could become part of a disinformation operation. Nobody, the thought didn't even cross people's minds before 2016. That is, as I say in the book, that was really the golden age of disinformation because you could do it at ease, with great ease, um, and nobody was expecting it to happen. So that's the first effect. The second one I've I have this punchline that I say active measures are now more active. And that's the first thing that I meant here, more active because of leak sites, because of activists that can so easily uh, be exploited, but also less measured. So less measured in a, in the sense that it's harder to control operations. Once you've started one, they just turn into a, they develop their own energy and it's arguably harder to uh, pull them back. Than it was in the Cold War, but more importantly, perhaps it's harder to measure effects today than it than it was in the past, and it was already extremely hard in the past today we have this illusion that you know clicks and views and impressions and and whatnot and number of followers and numbers of retweets can easily measure the effect of an operation but I think that is a that is an illusion um so one of the most hopefully controversial chapters in my book will be the chapter on the IRA, in which I take a cold, hard look at the uh, data again on the Internet Research Agency and its effect on 2016 and actually find that the effect is vastly exaggerated.
2: Well, let me follow up on that because I find it so fascinating to think about how one of the effects of digital age is that from the perspective of intelligence officers who are working in active measures, political warfare, whatever we call it now in the intelligence communities, it's a much riskier environment to carry out these operations because you don't have as much control. Um, as you said, you know, you put the the drop out there, but then it takes on life of its own, um certainly because we have private platforms um, and industry who are involved in this whether there's private citizens, et cetera. And so one thing that I've always wondered about the digital age of disinformation, if we want to call it that, is it seems like states at least that are more comfortable with that kind of ambiguity, and I think Russia is one of those states, are just going to be much more active and also potentially effective um, and carrying out these kinds of operations where I think countries like the United States, which I think the culture is very different. Like, I think there's a desire for them to control operations and know exactly, you know, what are the tactics and what are the goals that we are going to achieve and how, um, is just not going to be, you know, comfortable in this for a variety of reasons. And so I, I just wonder if you think the same way, uh, about how the digital age also I suppose gives uh more fertile ground to more um risk tolerant actors uh versus more risk averse actors
0: yeah that's a great question the We certainly see that trend in cyber attacks that some intelligence agencies with high operational security and discipline you know tear down their infrastructure after exposure and others don't but let's go let's let's stay in the lane here. What I think is happening as a result of you know troll farms and all the coverage that social media influence operations are getting is that the, the, the corridor of operations is widening because it's relatively easy to run these cheap, high-volume social media campaigns that probably are not as effective, but often get a lot of traction when they are exposed and and you know they don't cost a lot of money anyway. There's low risk, so why not? Why not? Why not do a little bit of it? But there's no reason to assume that more disciplined, high, highly controlled, and potentially also high-impact operations shouldn't continue at the same time. You know, using some of the old and improved tradecraft, perhaps seeding information to journalists directly in ways that can't be digitally traced through you know human contacts and human informers. Why not? It's quite easy to pull off, really. So I would certainly expect both kinds of operations, the sort of high-end, stealthy, but also the uh, throwing spaghetti against the wall type operation to continue. And and let me just add one thought here, and that is that by overstating the impact of the social media campaigning, and I understand the temptation to do so, but by overstating the The impact, we are creating a marketplace and creating ultimately an incentive structure for adversaries to to go down that route. So we're really in a constructivist nightmare here.
2: The constructivist nightmare in which the IRA fit in relatively well, I suppose. Um, But I want to really dig deeper into this point because I do think this will be a point of controversy. um, Your analysis of the IRA's impact Could you talk a little bit more about how you measure that impact? Um, And I think we have to get into a conversation about what do we think, um, at least the IRA operation, which we should and you do separate from uh, the military intelligence operations by the GRU, which looked very different. So how do you understand the impact to be low and based on the goals that they were trying to achieve? How do you come to that conclusion?
0: Yeah. In a number of different ways. So obviously we have different sources of data. We have ads that were released by Facebook that are accessible in full. We have multiple different releases by from Twitter that are accessible in full. And then we have a couple of releases of information that are not accessible publicly in full, but that others have used in in reporting that are primary data, for example, from Facebook that was accessible to different congressional committees. So I, I looked at it was what was publicly available there and and did some more research that, that was not publicly available by just talking to people. And uh, so let me make one example. Mark Zuckerberg, and then again, I believe it was Facebook's general counsel, cited the number of 126 million impressions in congressional testimony several times. 126 million Americans touched or saw IRA content between January 2015 and um, August 2017. So that the number was reported, widely reported as shockingly high. So let's interrogate that number for a little bit. First, it's impressions. And you know I think we all know, most of your listeners will know, that impressions aren't the same thing as views. It's what's, what's whizzing past on your timeline when you scroll down your Twitter feed. It's not what you actually engage with. Then secondly, how many of these impressions were from before the election, because we're talking about election interference here, and how many of them were after the election, because the time span includes nine months post-election. And it turns out the answer is really hard to come by, but um, I did a lot of uh, number crunching and digging, and I came up with approximately 37% were before the election, and almost two-third of the impressions were after the election. Now, that is extraordinary. That means we are overstating the impact just on that one metric by a significant margin, not just a margin, by an order of magnitude. There are other examples like it. Let me just mention one other example briefly. When Twitter took down their accounts, you know, Tennessee GOP and various uh, Black Lives Matters fake accounts, they froze the follower count of these accounts in August 2017. So the next interesting question is, how many followers did these fake accounts have before the election? Again, not nine months later. And the answer is, you can look them up on the Internet Archive, for example, and you will find the follower count is much, much lower, sometimes as low as one-fifth of what we had later. Uh, Also, an interesting proxy is the number of archives of these accounts on the internet archive. And again, here you see that the vast majority of archives comes after the election, not before the election, which is a proxy for visibility. So if you take all that together, there are more I could go on for a long time, then you're just left with the intuition that maybe our analysis has been a little too knee-jerk on this.
1: So I do. This does open onto uh, the question of your methods in researching the book, which I do want to get to. But before we do that, your analysis on the IRA says something interesting and I, I think discouraging about the role of journalism. Once again, it, in a way, uh, you read that the IRA sort of. The campaign did not immediately rely on journalists, insofar as you know, the employees at the troll farm were directly posting content online rather than as with the GRU operation, depending on journalists to amplify it. But on the other hand, you also argue that the journalism about the IRA troll farms eventually created disinformation about the disinformation that in the end outweighed the initial effort. Can you talk a little more about that danger?
0: Yeah, and I, I I, mean, I'm a little provocative when I use the word disinformation in that sense here. I'm not talking about deliberate, although sometimes I wondered, but I'm really not talking about deliberate misstatements, uh, just uh, reporting that isn't as thorough as it could be. So for example, why did journalists not pull down, um, so many of them apparently not pull down the archive of Facebook ads and engaged with the statistics there? Answer is probably because it was PDF files. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, and it was hard to, you know, crunch data on a large number of clumsily formatted PDF files. So that Facebook, I guess, is to blame here for that. But but the numbers of these ads, the numbers of impressions are really not impressive. For example, the top ten ads that we see there are all audience building ads that say something like "support the badge" or. You know, nothing controversial, no wedge issues uh, there. Anyway, but journalists, uh, the press coverage of the IRA created this impression that the IRA is this powerful force that potentially has installed, you know, a president that that a lot of people find hard to take uh, on a daily basis. I mean, um, let's let's not turn this into a political conversation. It's just a matter of factual statement. So I think, uh, and, and I'll be deliberately provocative here, but I think we're looking at a double emotional bias here. A lot of journalists were had an issue with Facebook and Google because ultimately they took away their, their business model and plunged the entire industry into a crisis, and they had a problem with Trump. So the, blaming the IRA and blaming Facebook became an easy way out, and I think a little too easy in my mind.
2: So you've alluded to uh, a couple of times how you went about doing this research um whether it was looking at specifically the impact of the i r a and trying to really understand it, uh the interviews you have uh the archival information you're able to pull and you you've mentioned the internet archives, so could you talk a little bit about kind of the methodology behind how you go about telling a secret history? <laughs>
0: Uh, so, yes, I the Internet Archive is an important part of my research here and of showing my work. Because when you write about a book about disinformation, you don't want to have disinformation in the book, meaning you really have to show what you did and where you got information from. So I decided to, to, to take the fresh archival material that I uncovered that wasn't easily publicly accessible, unlike CIA archives, for example, And just put it out there, put it online on the Internet Archive. And instead of having an obscure archival footnote in my book or endnote, I have a still have an obscure endnote in my book, but with a link, with a simple archive.org link that will be, you know, not that won't rot and will be good for a very long amount of time. And people can just pull FOIA releases, you know, Stasi. Documents, KGB documents from Bulgarian archives, directly, and read them uh, in the original language. Sometimes I included translations. Uh, that is just something that I think is possible today, and uh, I wanted to lead by example when it comes to to citing sources in a way that makes them accessible to a wide audience. And so I, I really want to thank the Internet Archive, Mark Graham especially, and and his colleagues for. Supporting me in that in that uh, endeavor, they've been amazing.
1: All right, I think we're almost out of time. But before we wrap, Thomas, did you want to get into any of the stories that you shared about research methods before we wrap?
0: Yeah, I think you know one thing that I that I found remarkable is I I, I, I mentioned earlier when I started my disinformation history research, I was tracking a Russian hacking campaign, Moonlight Maze, and so I was getting myself up to speed with some uh, digital forensics methods. And what I did is I found myself using some of these digital forensics, open source intelligence search methods and apply them to old material, to archival material. So for example, one thing that just blew my mind and still does is the amount of foreign language material that I was able to ingest in languages that I don't speak. I mean, I, I, I think I use a dozen different languages at as, source as, as source material in the book. And usually I would auto translate even documents that are not text recognized, their ways and means to get them auto translated quickly, read a lot. And when I didn't understand or when I needed uh, quotes that I need, needed to be precise, I would work with students, uh, you know, Turkish students, students who speak Arabic. Of course, Chinese, Japanese for some st- sources, uh, Bulgarian, Ukrainian, uh, and Russian, and Italian in order to, to verify the material. So, I mean, that is just an extraordinary thing, the, how artificial intelligence ultimately has changed the game of translation and ultimately inter- influenced this human-machine interface that we use in translation, altering the role of the human translator quite fundamentally.
1: All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Once again, the book is Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review The Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.